the point at which the River Run Creek transitions into a dry, walkable stormwater drain is located beneath a rail bridge that carries both freight and passenger trains, but not coal, which travels on the other side of the TAFE for a brief moment before diverting to the high fields. My dog is comfortable with the rumble now, as the trains pass overhead as we trespass the drain's broad, curved trajectories from one side of the city to the other. We don't start here though. Our walk commences two kilometres back, two of the over 500 kilometres of drain network across the city, expanding and contracting to varying degrees of width. The stretch we walk spans 20 metres across, but it narrows to only three or four metres as it slinks into the heights of the suburbs. Aside from a couple of bridges, the drain is completely open air, seated some three metres below ground level with steep concrete walls, appearing somewhat like a baking tray or a marble run. I first guided my dog down here after reading a book by a local author about his own walks through the drain with his dog. The book was written in the style of the English naturalists, the walking phenomenologists who made it their mission and their pleasure to observe the area in which they lived, in service of folk scientific inquiry, learning the names of the plants, the variety of birds flitting about, recognising seasonal patterns. There is a section in the book where the author wanders beneath a fold of torn metal fencing into the disused gas works that runs alongside the stormwater drain, and he says that if asked by any remnant security or council workers why he was trespassing, he would simply say that his dog ran through the fence and that he was just going in to retrieve him. That was enough of a license for me to do the same, putting aside the joy of watching my dog run free through the length of drain as far as my vision carries, in which we have never, in my years of doing this, come across another dog down here, and only very occasionally another human traveller. My favourite part of the trek is a length of some 500 metres that curves out of view from the nearest bridge or roadway, not visible from the rail line either, so that for some 10 minutes of walking, it is as if I am the only human on the planet. It is a solipsist's dream. On one side is the abandoned gas works, on the other an abandoned fuel depot, both vacant of any activity, and growing along the ridge of the walls of the drain are these immense golden willows that hang low their branches and rustle like a 1950s mesh coin purse that softly pleat coins of jangled sunlight. Sometimes I lean back and watch the trees repeat their breeze-jostled sequence for 20 minutes while my dog finds a warm patch of ground to embrace. One early morning, some weeks back, beneath just this sort of gentle acceleration of sunlight, my dog and I clambered up the concrete walls of the drain at a point where a minor stormwater course joins up with the central passage and found ourselves on a raised spit of field that backs onto the old gas works, not only backs onto but leads into, as a nearby security gate is wide open within the surrounding mesh fence line. Until the 1980s, the gas works turned coal through an oxidation process into gas for the city. 
Now it sits vacant, a half-dozen silos casting shadows over bullgrass and dust like a batch of giant, discarded sundials. Most of the stairwells attached to the side of the silos are wholly rusted away, but one remains intact, enough so that my dog and I can ascend to the top without any hassle. On top of the silo, I feel a sudden sensation to recline on its flat concrete lid and close my eyes, my dog already doing the same beside me, in a gesture that I can only describe as being analogously triggered by another mirrored circumstance some months prior. At that time, I was again walking with my dog down the drain, but in the opposite direction, towards an area surrounded by sporting facilities. It was coming into twilight, but the sun was in a similar position to now, just on the opposite side of the sky, falling instead of rising. My dog leapt up the sides of the drain to get to the grass up there, preferring its soft texture beneath his paws after all that concrete, and when I followed him up, I saw we were on a bank of turf behind a fence at the back of a soccer field. Soccer season was over for the year, and the grounds were empty and inactive. But just like the gas works, a security gate within the mesh fence had been left open. So, we walked in. The grass was dry and wispy. It looked like it had been some weeks since it was last mown, and perhaps this unkempt appraisal beckoned my dog to freely bound around its quadrant. The soccer field is at the back of another sporting field, which is at the back of a tennis facility, so it is out of view of public thoroughfare when not in use. This is not an excuse to just let a dog run around a private sporting facility, nor an excuse to wander into an abandoned gas works, but sometimes moral problems give way to aesthetic solutions, especially when ambient evening light presses its weight over an expanse such as this. It had been a long day and a long month, and as I wandered onto the middle of the pitch, I sat down, looked up at the extinguished stadium lights, and thought about how peaceful it would be to fall back into the grass and go to sleep there. I woke up some two hours later in the dark, with a back pocket full of missed calls from my wife. Forty or so minutes, who was counting, after deciding to recline on the top of the old silo, I opened my eyes and realised that the same thing had happened again, just as on the soccer field. I thought it would be nice to have a rest in an empty public space and unknowingly, without anticipation, fall asleep, but who would have thought I would see it through? I woke up facing the sky with a start and gripped the roof of the silo with clamped fingers, worried I was nearer the edge than I actually was, slowly turning my head to the side I locked eyes with my dog as he began reading my expression, which I immediately softened so as to not cause him any undue distress. Beyond his curled form, big brown bucket of fluff that he is, I looked across the pitched rooftops of nearby factories and warehouses, across the rail line, to the TAFE where I could see the quarters my son and I covered there, from the creek to the car park, from one magnitude of bricks to another, to the courtyards in their wake. Gazing across a broad expanse of geography fills me with a sense of pending internal completeness. When you sit on the beach, 
and look out to the ocean or sit on a porch and look across a field towards a distant mountain range, is the attraction a physical one, a resonance with symmetry, scale and colour, the lines of the environment, an impetus to action? Or rather, is it a metaphysical attraction, rendering the ocean and the field as metaphors, as an architecture of poetics that conjure feelings of freedom, infinity, the purity of faultless nature, and our kinship by association. I have come to think of my relationship with landscape as one of subphysicality, beneath conscious association and physical connection, within enclaves of unintelligibility, in a manner that positions these landscapes as analogous to the shape of the Inland Empire that is my subjectivity. These landscapes are not analogous in an abstract form within my mind. Instead, they exist as my mind, subject as object. To look from the ceiling of the gas silo across an expanse of grassland and industry is to recognise the literal chemical, electrical silhouette of my own awareness. Environmental declivities and ascensions are carved into the fabric of my consciousness as into an inverted mirror allowing landscape to pour into the negative space at the foothold of my thoughts, providing to the body a simulation of what division without remainder might feel like. During a recent afternoon at the TAFE, while my son and I were going up and down a stairwell that leads to a storage corridor beneath one of the buildings, I spotted a lady, in her sixties say, five foot something, wiry and postured forthright, dressed in dark materials with patches of purple and green that I associate with tapestry, and what I saw her do was circle one of the gum trees standing 50 metres from where my son and I were on the stairwell, and she took a long, eye-level gaze at the trunk of the tree before walking over to it, turned to face the other way, and let her body fall back into the tree where, somehow, her body perfectly fit. I had not looked at the tree previously, but based on what I was seeing, it appears that in one side of the tree there was a gap, perhaps where the tree had rotted away and left an inclination that cupped her body as if she was born out of that very tree. When I saw her enact this scene, I thought, that's right, landscape as analogy, subject as object, she and the tree are two connected parts of a whole. She is the framework of subjectivity, and the tree is the external world forged from its cast. To talk about landscape and nature is to talk about oneself indirectly. Possibly it is the only manner in which to talk about oneself that is not socially repulsive. What I'm doing here with this sort of writing and thinking about walking is initiating the technology through which I escape from populated society. I enjoy living in the city, but I tend to believe that a city reaches its functional peak once it becomes empty of people, 